Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Eliza Pressman, and I'm thrilled to have Madeline Levine. Madeline Levine is a psychologist and best-selling author of some of my favorite parenting books. She wrote The Price of Privilege, Teach Your Children Well, and her new book, Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World is awesome and really important right now. So today we're talking about raising kids in a VUCA world. VUCA is an army term for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Setting our kids up for resilience in an age of uncertainty is so on our minds. If you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, write a review, and of course, keep DMing me on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast so that I can answer your listener questions on bonus episodes and on videos. Part of what had me decide to do this book was maybe five years ago, I went to get a mortgage at my local bank, uh, First Republic, and I had the head of the mortgage department. And as I'm leaving, I have three grown sons. My youngest son at that time, 19 or so, says to me, can I go with you? And I said, sure. So he goes with me and this woman and I have, I don't know, an hour and 20 minute conversation. And Jeremy, that's my is just being who he is, which is a very thoughtful, empathic kind of kid. So in this hour, hour and a half, twice he says, hey, mom, you know, I think the meter is going to run out. Do you want me to put in a quarter? Sure. And my voice is always ragged. So at one point he said, I saw there was tea out there. Would you like me to get you some tea? And then he turns to the woman and says, you know, I'm going to get it from my mom. Would you like it? An hour and a half. Later, I get my mortgage. She turns to my son and says, you've got a job here. I want to hire you. Uh And and so once the initial shock (laughs) wore off, I'm like, you don't know anything about my son. You don't know his age. You don't know where he went to college. If he went to college, nothing. And she said, I can teach him what he needs to know in banking. I can't teach him to be that person who I want sitting next to me when I'm at work. And it was like, okay, I didn't make this up. This is the real world now. The real world is people looking for empathic, thoughtful, works well in a group, flexible, creative. Are there some jobs which are highly technical and that's not what they're looking for? Sure. But the majority of jobs are just like that. So, you know, I have quotes from the head of hiring at LinkedIn saying, I can teach you the same thing over and over. I can teach you that stuff. You have to be a good learner. I have to like you. You have to have good social skills, which, you know, if if you read the book, it's always called soft skills. Right. And I hate that term. I know. Because I think they are just as hard to master as physics. There is so much judgment around these soft skills that come from soft sciences. Right. Although they also come from technically hard sciences because we have brain science now, which I feel like should count. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
I would love to hear from you kind of what the problem is, which you just started to share Mm -hmm. and um, some of your key findings and how we can make them actionable as parents. Sure. The things that make us good partners, good mothers, good friends, all those things, those are incredibly important. And they're far more important than whether or not you got an A on your calculus test or not. And yet people cling to that. And, you know, you're in the field, you know that rates of depression and anxiety, they're just going up. They're just going up, right? It's been a very hard time. Very hard time. Going right. up. Um, but do you feel like they would have been going up anyway? I kind of think they they maybe were headed in that direction a little bit. Well, I'm leaving out COVID because I think with COVID, if you had an anxiety disorder, you got more anxious. If you were depressive, you got more depressed. You know, whatever your crack was, each one of us has something that became more. But I think the trajectory was going up. And, the, and I think what changed was that when I first started 15 years ago, I was only talking to parents, right? Because I felt like they had the most influence on the kids. By the time I finished, the kids had internalized this idea of they were only as valuable as their last performance. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a really worrisome change to me that it wasn't just the parents because I had plenty of parents saying, I've listened to you. I don't talk about it anymore. We don't make a big deal. Although I used to go to dinner with some of my families just to see, they would like, we don't do anything. We don't talk about it. So, okay, let me sit down and have a meal with you. And they didn't, they didn't say anything about their own kids. What they did talk about was the guy down the block who just got uh-huh. hired by Goldman Sachs and the guy with the new Maserati and the guy with the le- whatever, you know, with all the markers. And I don't ever want to sound like I'm anti-intellectual or anything like that. From my point of view, kids do better when they're mentally okay. And the idea that you can do extremely well when you're stressed or anxious doesn't make sense to me. I had this kid who was taking advanced calculus, not calculus, advanced calculus in high school. And his father graphed every single test he got to make sure that he was improving and so that they had a record of what he did. Now, advanced calculus and the kid can't graph his own (laughs) scores. So what does the kid end up doing? He ends up with trichotillomania. He's pulling out his eyebrows. He's pulling out his eyelid. His anxiety is through the roof. Might he get into Harvard? I don't know. Maybe he will. Will he do well there? I can promise you he probably won't. And so that trade-off, leaving aside, you know, foundational skills, soft skills, hard skills, all of that, just the idea that 25% of kids meet the criteria for diagnosis that, you know, you've grown up with that. I didn't. I, you know, when I was in school, it was 8%, something like that. Now I have 25% of kids. And that is just horrifying. And there are many reasons. I don't ever want it to sound like I have the only reason for that. There are many reasons for that. But our work at Stanford tells us that parental pressure is one of the greatest has the greatest impact on children's sense of confidence and anxiety and depression. So that's a huge sentence to (laughs) have out there and so important. And it's not parent blaming. It's just informing. I think it's, we all want to know this because we can look at our own behavior, which is the only thing we can control. So I think if you can get past how awful it feels to imagine that you might contribute to your child's stress and anxiety and depression and anything else, there's hopefulness in that message to me because we can do something. Well, well, that's, that's right. And I was talking to somebody else earlier in the day and it was like, well, why don't we do it? And, you know, we all know this. So how come we can't do it? And I've been thinking about that. I think part of it is we're not convinced that this 
is really helpful. Like you and I talked about before, is it an experiment? Are we experimenting with children? And the other thing is this tremendous amount of attention that we give to our kids' problems. Mm-hmm. Um, how many times, I don't know, in your, in your practice, but so many times I've heard a parent say something like, I cannot stand to see my child unhappy. I can't stand it. You know, Dr. Levine, you want me to do this, but it's going to make my kid unhappy. And, you know, I may sound old and crabby. My answer always is, if you can't stand to see your child unhappy, you're in the wrong profession. Absolutely. You're not old and crabby. Right. But that's just part of the deal. And being um, a person. Right. And the reality is life is tough. Kids are going to get banged up by life. And if they don't have any confidence, if they don't have any practice, if they don't have any experience in meeting a challenge, solving it or failing at it, it's still the same process, as you well know, of learning to manage challenge. And when I was your age, there was no such thing as an emerging adulthood program for kids. No such thing for the 21-year-old who just doesn't know how to cook a meal or and is depressed about it. And we have that now. Probably half of the referrals I make into programs like that for kids who just really weren't allowed to grow up. And I think we have an easy time when our kids are young, right? Um, I just became a grandma. Congratulations. Thank you. It's fabulous. Um, and of course I was over there yesterday and all of Emery is my granddaughter. All of a sudden she starts crying. It's like bedtime. And I'm like, see ya. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I'm enjoying it. But I, as she tries to learn how to walk, she falls down, she falls down, she falls down and nobody is standing over her saying, you keep falling down like that and you're going to be flipping burgers, right? They don't, they're just like, come on, maybe you can do it. You can, a lot of encouragement. And somehow when our kids have their fall downs, when they're older, we think it's going to ruin their lives. You know, Mm -hmm. I can't have my kid have a ticket. It's going to ruin his application to college and I'm getting a lawyer, that kind of thing. And What gets missed in that, and I call it accumulated disability in the book, all those opportunities to have learned where parents think they're being helpful, you know, we all do it. We all do it for a variety of reasons. You are actually robbing your child. That's a robbery. It's like, oh, here's an opportunity to learn. Let me snatch it away from you. Mm -hmm. And that concept seems a little bit easier for people to understand because they can see it. Your kid is afraid of the dog, right? The dog barks and she doesn't want to walk past the dog anymore. She's seven or eight years old. And if you go around the corner with her or if you have her avoid it, it's exactly what we don't do in the office. What we do in the office is expose the child little by little in tolerable amounts to the very thing she's afraid of. And I think with COVID, people became more and more nutty about my Mm -hmm. my kid, this is terrible and I've I've got to protect my child. But the real protection, I'm on a rant now, the real real protection (laughs) is having your kid have that toolbox of coping skills so that when they meet challenges, they know where to turn. I mean, I would go as far as saying for a certain group of kids, okay, I can't say this out loud, but for a certain group of kids, this is the first challenge they will have ever faced where their parents couldn't fix it. And they probably will be better for it. See, so why do you think you can't say that? No, you're right. I mean, it's ridiculous Uh, because I want to be sensitive to the fact that for some people, this was absolutely uh, only devastating and no good came of it. But for the majority of people, hopefully we talked about this earlier, but is there one thing that you got from this that wasn't a disaster? And when it comes to kids who have parents who are not in a situation where they 
are losing resources in a way that makes them it unmanageable to be a parent and to survive. Right. Um, or if they haven't lost family members, if they have parents who can still function right. despite being unhappy about it, right. then it's the first time that a lot of those kids have not been able to tantrum their way out of or manipulate (laughs) their way out of being uncomfortable and similar to like a car seat you know car seats are the only thing where I always use that as an example with parents where I say no you know how to create a limit you know how to set a limit and stick to it because you don't go on the freeway with your baby in a just rolling around in the back (laughs) even if you have like a toddler who's screaming and angry about it you still make it happen and they still love you and they're still okay and in fact they're healthier for it and so i do think this is one of those half do's that challenged and stretched the hell out of kids and for the ones who had the right support system I think they're gonna be more resilient for it right and I I think that's an important message because I think there's been some overplay of the pathology of the pandemic Mm -hmm. and I was talking to Child Mind Institute week or so ago and they, they came out with their numbers and basically what they said is if your kid was okay before they're going to be okay. Right. It, there's no question that this was incredibly difficult. And it's interesting, in the very beginning of the pandemic, when people said, what do you do? I said, your job is to get through this, period. You know, everybody else was coming out with lists and you should bake and you should go through your clothes. And I'm like looking at it going, no, I'm not going to do any of that stuff. I just got to get through this in whatever way I can. Nobody says anymore. That's an awfully low bar, Dr. Levine. What do you mean just get through? It was not a low bar. It was was an incredibly difficult period of time. And I think it's very important to acknowledge that there are kids, that the bifurcation in this country has only gotten worse in terms of resources, in terms of education, in terms of Wi-Fi, you name it, it's gotten worse. So I think, you know, it's worth noting that for some portion of the population, this was untenable. Mm -hmm. And bringing those kids up to speed psychologically and educationally is going to be a project that we are not in the least bit prepared for. Not prepared for. Mm -hmm. But for the majority of kids where there were resources and, and I don't mean you had to be rich to get through the pandemic. You had to have a parent who managed, you know, and it, it's been interesting to me in terms of doing podcasts and talking to people. Everybody's always asking about the kids like, oh, you know, what do you do for the kid? What do you do for the kid? And that's important what you do for the kid. But I've always felt and Sunya Luther. Yeah. More than anybody. Totally turned totally toward the parents. Right. If you're okay, the odds are your kids are going to be okay. And if you could just stop carrying on about what do you do with your kid? What do you do about your kid? And understand that self-care is child care. Mm -hmm. Um, That that's what you can do is you can figure out your own toolbox, what you need to be calm, to be capable your kids will follow. And that's where I feel like for those who figured that out and who are, there's still an opportunity because it's still going on um, that there may be this unrecognized stretching of muscles that will be so much stronger and being able to see your adults. I mean, I had this I guess I can't use a name, but it was my sister. <laughs> but my sister was sort of appalled about something that had shifted at the school and the way that they managed something. And I love my sister. She's wonderful. And she was just sharing with me. And she asked me what I thought. And it doesn't even matter what the content was. It was something right. that she felt was a mistake on behalf of the children that was all the parents were up in arms about. And I just said, you know what? It's making me think what are our kids seeing as we get up in arms at the school every time they change something or every time there's a shift? To me, my bigger worry is that our children are not seeing parents who can adapt. Mm -hmm. 
So actually, that's a great example. Yeah. Um, so I'm sorry for using my <laughs> sister there. And she sort of said, you know, no, that's not the point. And then she stopped and she said, I, okay, I guess I see your point, but the minutia of focusing and trying to control the schools and having our kids watch that and watch us screaming about it is so much more damaging. I think than the school's probably making a few mistakes here and there because sure. they're at a, a crossroads and don't know, you know, we're going to, there's a lot of change right now and nobody really knows what the exact right, right moves are. And so I think parents being able to self-regulate during that and be adaptable will be a huge gift for kids. And again, stretch their resilience because they're seeing something instead of just being managed by parents and watching parents try to control things they absolutely cannot control. Right, right. So for all of us, it's a lesson and you can't control everything. Mm -hmm. Teachers around the country are quitting left and right. I just heard all kinds of carrying on about my kids' previous school district. And it's like, you know, what do you think? Nobody has a clue. Teachers are really frontline people. You've got to be respectful of the role that they have played. And they're figuring it out just like you are. And so that kind of flexibility and empathy in what you've just talked about is really important. So you don't want to say to your kid, what a bunch of knuckleheads, you know, they can't, how stupid, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. You really want to lead with empathy. It's been really hard on teachers. They're trying to figure out what to do. And one, you're leading with empathy. Also, you're solution oriented as opposed to having a tantrum about, you know, what you're not getting. So yeah, yeah it's a great example. The world is racing to get back to normal and start meeting up again in person. After the year we've all had, getting back to feeling normal takes time. And if you're feeling overwhelmed by all of this, you are definitely not alone. It's important to find the support you need to face those feelings and move forward. Even if you have a strong social support and friends who are there for you, it's so helpful to speak with a licensed professional to get unbiased feedback and support. And over 50% of Americans struggle with their mental health. You are definitely not alone if you are feeling like something is going on inside of you. We all need help sometimes and asking for support when you need it is a sign of strength. I'm so happy to have Talkspace sponsor this podcast because Talkspace makes it easy to match with a licensed therapist schedule a live video session, and do so all from the comfort of your device, which is something that people have gotten much more comfortable with this past year and a half. You can start messaging therapists the same day you sign up. The Talkspace app makes it easy to connect with your licensed therapist on your schedule without wait lists, waiting weeks for an appointment. Whether you're experiencing depression, anxiety, or just need a place to talk, Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform to help you sort through any issues. There are thousands of licensed therapists that are available to match with you. Talkspace therapists are experts in dozens of specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more, so that you can start getting help. Start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code HUMANS. That's $100 off when you use the code HUMANS at Talkspace.com. If you need help, go get it. FrameBridge makes it easier and more affordable than ever to frame your favorite things without ever leaving the house. Add a gallery wall to your home office or send the perfect gift. From art prints and diplomas to the photos sitting on your phone, you can FrameBridge just about anything. Here's how it works. You just go to FrameBridge.com and upload your photo, or they'll send you packaging to safely mail in your physical pieces. You preview your item online in dozens of frame styles and gallery wall layouts. Choose your favorite, get free recommendations, whatever works for you. And instead of the hundreds you'll pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39. All shipping is free and every listener gets 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use the code HUMANS. Order at framebridge.com. 
I love having Framebridge as a sponsor of this podcast because we've got Framebridge all over my house. It's so much fun if you have kids who want to decorate their room with photographs that give them happy memories. This is such a fun thing for them to do and they can design it for their own personalized wall. That's what my kids did. I think it's awesome. So get started today. Frame your photos or get someone the perfect gift. Go to framebridge.com and use the promo code HUMANS to save an additional 15% off your first order. Framebridge.com promo code HUMANS. H-U-M-A-N-S. This episode is brought to you in part by MZ Wallace. Make the most out of every day. MZ Wallace is a chic, innovative line of bags and accessories that are designed to do more. Whether that means more traveling, more fitness, or more efficient commute, or just more fun. Whether it's a multitasking tote for the office or a hands-free crossbody for running around with your kids, try an MZ Wallace bag for yourself and discover the class-leading quality, lightweight, innovative design, and the style that will make your all-day, everyday bag awesome. The MZ Wallace co-founders started the brand after years of working in the fashion industry and realizing that the bag they needed, one that could stand up to everything on their schedule from getting to school in the morning, working out to an evening on date night, didn't exist. So they set out to create it themselves. You'll find pockets where you need them, lightweight stain and water resistant materials that are easy to wipe clean, and so many other smart design details that you didn't even know you needed like a place for your phone and secret compartments so you don't lose your keys. MZ Wallace believes that great design isn't just how something looks, but how it works. From their high quality, long lasting materials to their timeless style, have an MZ Wallace bag by your side so that you can be prepared to take on your day. The bag I have is the Metro Tote Silhouette. It has a luggage sleeve, two exterior pockets, two zippered collar pockets, a removable adjustable crossbody strap. It's ready for everything, wherever your day takes you. It has a zip top enclosure so that you don't drop your bag and spill everything out. Even reinforced padded nylon handles if your shoulders start to hurt because your bag gets too heavy. They've really thought of everything. And inside, it also fits a 13-inch laptop, has a bunch of interior pockets, and a detachable pouch for when you don't need to bring everything with you. Even a phone pocket and a keyring strap, they thought of everything. This is like moms being efficient in action. MZ Wallace is offering Raising Good Humans listeners 15% off your first purchase. Just go to mzwallace.com slash humans. That's mzwallace.com slash humans for 15% off your first purchase. MZ Wallace designed to do more. In a study by Esquire, 54% of women said they'd rather be hit by a car than considered fat. If I'm being honest, I've been those women. So for me, this isn't just a podcast, it's personal. I'm Danielle Robay, TV host and journalist, and years of celebrity interviewing taught me that beauty isn't about what you look like, it's about who you become. Each week, I'm having thought-provoking conversations, digging into the stories of people who put a new spin on pretty. From entrepreneurs and authors to politicians and celebrities, no topic is off limits. So join me every Thursday for a new episode to feel pretty inspired, pretty seen, and best of all, pretty smart. So VUCA, I wanted to to ask you about this VUCA world and have you go diving into that because this really is about raising our kids in an uncertain world and how we, what can we do? So I told you, I I stopped with my usual suspects, which are, you know, psychologists and educators and said, who manages well in this environment, right? And it was the military and it was big businesses. So I talked to the head of J.P. Morgan and I talked to the vice chair of uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I got to talk to amazing people. VUCA stands for volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. That's the world they live in. And so I'm constantly like, who succeeds in that world? If that's the world as it's going to look, who succeeds in it? And I think the thing that I learned was the people who did well were not what you and I would think of as the heroes or 
the bravest guy in the world. They could not predict who would wash out and who would do well in something like the SEALs, which is probably the toughest training there is. They couldn't predict it. Like you would think it's the toughest guy or the biggest guy or the least fearful. It wasn't. It was a combination. I mean, you had to be a big Right. There's a certain amount of physical training. (laughs) Right. You had to be in good shape. But once you had that, it was really about self-control. And as a adolescent psychologist for 40 years, every kid I ever saw in my office was a failure in self-regulation. Everyone. It was drinking and driving. It was shoplifting. It was, I feel lousy, so I'll cut myself. Those are all failures in self-regulation. So that was great to hear because I've been pushing that for a very long time is if you're going to, t- if you're going to focus on anything, focus on that. And it's interesting because I see with my little granddaughter, how do you do that? You know, everything is, well, okay, how do you get your kids to self-regulate? And it starts really small. So she'll, you know, your audience probably doesn't have two-year-olds, but she'll start. Oh, with, I think they actually, a lot of the audience has two-year-olds. Oh, okay. So the kids arrange. So the the kid starts with, I want my cookie. And her mom says, Well, not right now, honey. And she then she gets worked up. And I have forgotten what a good temper tantrum looks like. It is an amazing piece of human behavior. And she doesn't say to her, go to your room, I can't stand it. Or she doesn't say, you're never going to have a cookie now. She says, if you can stop that and wait two minutes, you can have the cookie. And she sets the timer. And I think that's brilliant in terms of, she's not asking her to do something outside her capacity in terms of regulation. She's asking her to push that boundary just a little bit. We in education, ZPD, the zone of proximal development, you can wait two minutes and then it'll be four minutes and then it'll be 10 minutes, whatever. You know, that's that practice is how people get good at what we're calling foundational or soft skills. They have to be practiced over and over again. And just to clarify, for those who don't know zone of proximal development, just know it's about making sure that what you're asking of your child is something that, yes, might stretch them, but you know they're capable of it. It's not asking something that's unreasonable. Right. That's right. Or too easy. Right. And I think of it also a little bit as your kid may not be able to do that, that, you know, there's what they can do and what they can't do. And then there's that sort of gray area mm-hmm. and that's the zone of proximity. Maybe, maybe not. You can always come in afterwards and help out, but having the confidence in the kid mm-hmm. and giving them the opportunity to stretch themselves a little bit. And it's so hard for us. I remember my youngest son, Jeremy, the one who I was talking about before had asthma as a kid and a friend invited him to a rock climbing camp in Yellowstone. And his asthma was under control. He knew how to manage himself. And for me, I didn't sleep the weekend he was away. I didn't sleep, period. What if he has an attack? What if they're not near a hospital? He had a great time. And so I think tolerating our own anxiety, it's not just our kids' anxiety that we don't like. We don't like our own anxiety either. And so we're always trying to bring it down. And one of the ways we bring it down is by being overly protective, overly involved. Let me go back to that dog example, right? If your kid is crying and nervous about the dog, that doesn't feel good to us, right? Oh, she's upset. I don't know what to do, you know. So in avoiding it and being avoidant, we calm our own anxiety as well because we avoid the situation. So our kid avoided it and we avoided it. And what did our kid learn? They certainly didn't learn how to tolerate a barking dog or how to walk past something that makes them a little anxious, but it's not a threat. Obviously, if the dog is running around the streets, that's when, you know, he's a neighbor, suburban neighbor dog barking in the yard. So I think we're working on our kid's anxiety, but I think we're also trying to limit our own anxiety. And this time period First of all, raising kids in general, but then raising kids right now. Yeah. 
there's extra work to be done. Yeah. Because everybody's feeling, I, I definitely, I'm sure you get these questions too, but just like the constant question of how will this impact our children uh-huh. and how will this impact our children is a cry for certainty. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. We're all being forced to live with a degree of uncertainty. So then the question becomes, how do you live with uncertainty? And I think you figure out what you can and cannot control because, you know, our brain is like a prediction machine. Our brains are happy when they can predict things. You said you have two teenage daughters, so you know when they're going to get up, more or less. You know what they're going to eat, more or less. You know where their school is or where to drop them off or when they'll... Can you imagine... Right. Imagine what your life would be if you couldn't predict all those things. Your whole life would be trying to figure out the next step, the next step. So our brains are most at ease when we can predict, which is why this time is so incredibly difficult because we can't predict. We just cannot. And if that means the only thing you can control is what you eat for dinner and what you watch on television. That's why we're all I just Being watching. Yeah. I just finished watching seven seasons, 70 episodes of Bosch in maybe a month, 70 episodes. I'm and not I, even flinching because of how much I, I didn't even watch TV before this pandemic. And now I can say with great confidence, I am quite an expert at binge watching. <laughs> right. Right. And so, but that goes back to something we were talking about earlier. You got to know what does it for you, what chills you out, what makes you capable of getting up the next morning and taking care of business. And if that's watching Bosch, I don't know what you, with a pint of Ben and Jerry's, then that's what it is. (laughs) It's funny because that's the other thing that I think also figuring out that we can do some of those things with our kids and it doesn't all have to be productive, right? You know, getting better at things, what um, right. for whatever that means, because we're getting better at showing our kids and ourselves that this is just how we feel. This is our way of self regulating, right? And almost all the kids that I've talked to, almost all of them have said they feel better about their family through this period of time to the extent to which they just hung out. You know, they're complaining about this, that or the other thing. But almost to a one, the kids have said, yeah, my family's not so bad or, yeah, it wasn't so bad. So awesome. Yeah. But I think it's true. I think if you're not pushing what you get on your test why was it an a minus you know and instead are like okay you set the table what are we going to have for dinner tonight you know if if it's like normal life as opposed to this tremendous over involvement in performance i think it's a it's a happier household as you said it's not just about how we respond to our kids but how we respond to our community and to stories that we hear and what are the stories that we're bringing back or the things in the news that we share are they the heroes are they the overachievers are they you know what's happening but i wanted to specifically talk about unhealthy overachieving versus a healthy dose of just self motivated whatever uh-huh. Because I don't want to, and I think you do this so beautifully, you're not saying that doing things and learning things and growing intellectually is a bad thing. You're saying that some of the focus on how we end up doing that is misguided and possibly unhealthy. So so using achievement, just because that's one that really, it's a self-selecting listener who is potentially hard on themselves about being a super achieving parent. So I, I want to acknowledge that and recognize that it's a, it's a potential, what's that phrase? It's like a risk of the job, Uh Um, you know, that um, the job, yeah. The job that sometimes the very people who are here, I also need to say you're doing a fantastic job because you care and you're paying attention. So you probably don't need to be focused on getting better at this and letting go of a little bit more of the pressure that we put on ourselves. But with that in mind, I thought unhealthy overachievers versus a more Mm -hmm. adaptive achievement. 
Mm -hmm. I thought we could maybe go through that because, and and I think temperament goes into this as well. So I just wanted to use that phrase of the unhealthy overachiever and deconstruct it a little bit. And then I want to talk about how we can also value and support our kids, not for their accomplishments, while still appreciating the effort that they put into things so that they don't feel invisible if that was something important to them. That's a really interesting question about what's the difference between overachievement and the healthy kid who's, you know, all about his grades and and what he's learning. And and I think that's the um, deciding factor. The, the kid who is interested in learning, I'm not worried about. This is the kind of kid I'm worried about. I used to have a patient. She was in college. She wanted to be a doctor. And she would study like crazy and take Adderall to stay up, take her test. She'd ace it. And then the next day she would take downers so that she could sleep. And then she forgot everything that was on the test. I don't want her to be my doctor. She was not interested in what she was learning. She was only interested in her performance. And so I think, you know, for example, a kid comes home and he's like, I got an an A. You know, where does your attention go? Does it go to the A or does it go to the learning that the kid did? So the question, you know, I've heard so many parents, including myself, say, (laughs) I used to have my son, Jeremy, the the really sweet kid who- Really loved Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) ended up being a lawyer. He was just a solid B plus student all the time, no matter how hard he worked or didn't work B plus. And there were plenty of times that I said, you know, couldn't you just move that up to an A minus? That was a mistake that had nothing to do with what he was learning, what he wasn't learning, what was valuable and how he approached things, how he felt about that as opposed to how. Right. I felt about it. So, I, th- you know, I think if your kid is all about coming in and telling you how incredibly well they performed all the time, that's a, a signal. And when you said, you know, we're not anti-achievement, somewhere on, I think it was Amazon, somebody called me a Yenta and, <laughs> and, and said, you know, it was sort of a vaguely anti-Semitic thing about being anti-intellectual which always cracks me up. I mean, I'm a PhD, I'm a Jewish PhD from New York, married to a doctor. So I am not about low levels of achievement. It just, it's like the message is your kid will achieve so much more if they feel good about themselves, if they're confident in their skin, if they don't feel that their value depends on their grade. I mean, in real life, To some degree, when we know we're making mistakes, I loved your car seat. At this stage of my life, it's like, knock it off. It's not good for you. It's a distraction from your own life. And again, it's Jeremy. I mean, my kids are all great, but for some reason, he's coming up a lot today. (laughs) I'm not sure why. The light went off for me. Three boys, a thousand soccer games, lacrosse games, basketball games, right, as they're growing up. And a lot of them were boring because they just are when your kid is eight years old and hitting the soccer ball the wrong way, whatever. And a lot of them are fun. So I, I wouldn't have eliminated them all. But Jeremy comes over to me one day there. He's playing soccer. All the parents are like this, you know, with their phone doing this because we're not really that interested. And he said, Ma, there's a field right next to this one that's not being used. Why don't you take all the parents and go over there and play some ball. Oh, that was my like, okay, he doesn't need me here. It makes adulthood look so boring, right? This is adulthood. I work all week long. And then on the weekend, I'm like looking at my phone while my kids are doing something or another. So I think part of it is, this is just a very particular point of view that we're having trouble with our own lives to some degree, with our own hobbies, with our own friendships. And we'd rather sit at that game than go out with our husband or our partner for brunch or read a book or whatever. So I think if you're being completely honest, you take a look at yourself. 
part of that is also the feeling of, you know, the good parent doesn't miss a game. The mm-hmm. good parent shows up to everything. The good parent finds a way to do pick up and drop off and all of those things. And not only is that untrue, uh-huh. but you can also be supportive without, you know, every parent's going to have a different way of showing support. Right. It may be though that for some showing up to a game really is how they can show support and it does feed them because that's, that is how they connect and then have at it. But I agree. I wouldn't have been one of those parents because I don't find that interesting. (laughs) Right. The truth comes out, right? (laughs) Um, Like it's a lot easier to get together. Yeah. And, you know, I think that was a big lesson in terms of, in my case, it wasn't for my kid. He wanted me out of there. It was for my presentation of myself as a good parent, what you're talking about. You know, when I think about my parents who my brother played D1 basketball, none of us ever went to a single game he played in. Right. It was like you didn't it never would have crossed our minds. So this redefinition of parenting as all in all the time, it's not always been that way. Right. This has been an evolution for many reasons. And, you know, we moved away from our family and there's I think there's less sense of community. Our community has gotten that's it. It's the dinner table is our community. Mm. And especially through covid and also in terms of what the seals taught me, your sense of purpose is critical. And if you don't have a sense of purpose and your purpose cannot just be going to your kid's basketball game, it just can't. You have got to model. Look what's going on in the country now. You've got to model that you're part of a bigger community. You're, you know, tikkun alum in, in Jewish, heal the world. You have responsibility. If you could explain how people can create their own mission statement Mm-hmm. And then perhaps we can create our own purpose statement for ourselves as individuals as well. Mm-hmm. Then there's something to go back to, to lean on. Right. So I, I love the idea. I suggest doing it for yourself first, because it helps if you're clear on your values. A mission statement just is people who don't quite know what we're talking about. It's just a statement like a business does about what the values are, what the goals are. And, and I think an important thing about mission statements is they need to be living documents. So I work a lot in the business world. They all have mission statements. They don't like to change them. You know, it's 25 years later and they still have, you know, grandpa's mission statement before there was technology or anything. So I think they need to be seen as, as living documents and they need to be done by the whole family. So it's not like you write a mission statement and put it on the refrigerator and say, this, this is who we are as a family. Right. It needs to be collaborative, which is one of the traits that go along with resilience and um, jobs. So you sit down and you th- I think you just throw around ideas to start with. What are your the first thing is what are your values? That's the most important part. So everybody sits, they write what their values are. There are some card sorts. If you you don't know how to get going, you can get a card a values card sort. And I did that with my family, and we loved it. It's interesting. You make a triangle. You, the values, you know, you top and see where there's alignment. And interestingly. The alignment is quite robust. So like helping people, everybody in my family has that at the top. We don't have everything the same by any means. But how that feels like when you have alignment with your family, especially as your families, as kids get older. And that to me is the most success outcome I could imagine that my idea of our values is aligned with what my children hold as deep and important values versus I say one thing, but actually my children are like, we value and it's totally the opposite because somehow that means there is a big disconnect between what I wanted to present as my values and what actually came across. Right. But you have teenagers. My kids are grown. Yeah. So you, you might find with a teenager 
some lack of alignment right now. Yeah, which, for you know, sure. we, did, we definitely <laughs> did that in the fall and shifted some things with COVID and yeah, totally. um, but you know, there's a lot to learn from the differences in values. There's as much to learn. Yes. We want alignment and we like that. And you know, the research is that kids grow up more like their parents and different from them in terms of values. So they are watching us all the time. We're the role models for how do you lead your life. And if you can get those values, some reasonable agreement on what the family values are, then you have to talk about what does that mean? You know, we the hard have, part. right. That's the hard part. And how do you make that real in the world? So you know, we may all say we like helping people, but what do we do about it? Okay. So taking all of our conversation and thinking about all of these things, mm-hmm. let's circle back to how to build resilience mm-hmm. and what part of that is on us. Okay. So I think that people don't have a good take on resilience, right? People tend to think you're born resilient or you're not. You know, you mentioned temperament before. So is there some temperament in resilience? Probably a little bit, but there is no resilience gene. It is not a genetic feature uh, of your kid. It's taught and we're not all resilient in all categories, right? You can be resilient under one set of circumstances and not so much in another. So what, you know, what is resilience? Resilience is some combination of self-regulation, thinking flexibly, of a sense of purpose, of optimism moving forward. You'll, you'll get through this day, you know, you'll make it to the next day. I would say those are the, the baseline traits of resilience. And h- how do you cope with those. I'm a pessimist by nature. So those, the heart and an introvert, which meant that COVID wasn't that hard for me. Uh Um, So the optimism of all those things was the hardest for me. Self-regulation, not so much. That was about always having your kids responsible for breaks in self-regulation. So I don't know. Tough story. My oldest kid, Lauren, I'm back to Lauren, graduation, had a party, you know, your standard suburban story. And there was no alcohol in the house. I went upstairs, went to bed. My husband was at Tahoe with my other kids. And I watched SNL go to sleep. All of a sudden, every emergency vehicle in Kentfield, the town I live in, is at my house. Why? Because the kids brought in alcohol in their backpack. One of the kids got drunk and had a panic attack. And instead of getting mom, who's a psychologist, they call 911. So I had all of this carrying on, going on. And it was very uncomfortable because I got cited wrongly. I was sound asleep, but I did. And so I had to get a defense lawyer. Don't let anybody think that I made no mistakes. There we go. And so the self failure and self-regulation, you knew that they couldn't be drinking. You knew that there would be a consequence for it. And here we are. And I got to tell you, he was so upset. He's crying. And I'm not mad at him. I mean, I'm upset, but I'm not mad at him. He's 17 and made a mistake, but he had to come with me to every meeting with the lawyer and he had to work to pay half of the fee of the lawyer. Now, if that sounds tough, I think it served him well. And that's how you, every time you say, I'm going to get a lawyer to get you out of something, I'm going to do it for you. Let me edit it for you. All of those things, they don't serve your children Mm -hmm. well. So self-regulation wasn't that hard. Flexibility, that's, you know, can you look at it another way? Tell me more about it. You know, people always say, oh, how do you get people to talk as a psychologist? It's hard to know that now, but I listen. That's what I do. I just listen and like, tell me more, which is, a, you know, a joke line, but it really isn't. People are anxious right. to tell you what they think. Could you see that differently? You know, we do that with little kids. How do you think Sam would feel if you broke his truck, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of a lot of that 
sense of purpose. You know, they saw my husband's a surgeon. I'm a psychologist. They saw us working their whole lives. I got tripped up on optimism because it is not a strong suit of mine. And some of these things will not be your strong suit. So what did I do? I, you know, I read Seligman, positive psychology over mm-hmm. and over again, hung out with people who were a little bit more optimistic than me and, and stopped saying, as my kids pointed out, every time they would go out, I would say, are you okay? Totally. totally. Are you okay. They'd come home. Are you okay? And it's like, Ma. And also being a New York Jew. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. We have a long history of things yeah. not being okay. Yeah. But, I tell my kids that all the time because I know that it's, you know, it's it's my, it's absolutely my challenge. I'm optimistic in the sense of I do uh, the hope part I've got down. Yeah. But the worst case scenario yeah, yeah. part, I also am incredibly good at. <laughs> Right. So, you know, it's a good example because this this has been a thread. What happens when you know you're doing something wrong and you know it's better to do it differently and it's hard for you? Right. I mean, for most moms, I know more about moms who are doing things that aren't good for their kids. They're not doing it because they're bad moms. They're doing it because they believe that this is the best way to raise a child. And so you and I've just said the catastrophizing. Yes, is a is, skill. Yeah, you know, you're okay, you're okay. So I had to work on that. Now, am I a raging optimist? Absolutely not. But I've cut out saying, are you okay? And now I have a granddaughter and she's little and it's like, mm. yeah. <laughs> so we should, ex- you know, we expect so much of ourselves in terms of our kids that's something we ought to expect. You know, you're making a mistake. Talk to a girlfriend, talk to a therapist, talk to your husband, talk, whatever. Try and make some progress in what's tough. So optimism, flexible thinking, self-regulation. I mean, all of these seem suspiciously housed in our executive function skills and our prefrontal cortex. So I guess growing that muscle, I'm saying muscle in quotes, but. um, I think we forget that for us and for our kids, it needs practice. So what I'm seeing in kids right now is that they're rusty. They've been inside for a year and a half. They're, you know, the kids I talk to, a lot of them on the phone or in my backyard is like, oh, you know, I can't go back to school. I don't know how to talk to girls, right? If you're going into seventh or eighth grade and you you left, you were only hanging out with the guys and now you're yeah. supposed to talk to a girl and you've had no practice, it's scary. I think we need to recognize that the architecture is in place. We have the architecture in place. Our kids have it in place. They need to get out and practice. So the kid who is, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to. I think they need some encouragement to push themselves a little bit, get back into the swing of it. I'm seeing a lot of kids who are kind of almost like amotivational. They they just don't want to take the risk of, going back out. And I think it's important not to get too involved with their lack of experience and to encourage them, look, you're going to have to practice this just like you practice basketball or piano or whatever it may be. So that was going to be my question is, so what are, what's some language to encourage? We're really good at language to encourage practicing math, but Uh what is the language to encourage practicing those skills, soft skills, not <laughs> soft skills, those really important social skills. You know, I think it's the velvet glove kind of thing. Uh, you can't say, what's the matter with you? You know, you're screwing up by not getting out there. I have, to, I think, you know, you want the language. It's something like, look, I know this is anxiety provoking. Of course it is. You haven't sat in a classroom for a year and a half. Of course, you know, to normalize it as opposed to pathologize it. But I think like everything, and depending on the kid's age, I might go back to basketball if it's a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old. You know how you had a practice and you weren't that comfortable, but you got better at it. That's how you get better at things. And I'd leave it at that. You know, I said before, I think no kid ever says, my parents listen too much. 
never, right? They always say, my parents don't listen enough. And I think this is a time to listen, to encourage, um, to guide, but to be gentle and to be gentle with ourselves also, by the way. This has been a lot of, well, I would do this and this. And I know that's what people want, but I also never want to add to the sense of burden right now, which I think we all feel, you know, so they're just suggestions. And it's easier to listen. So it's a great suggestion. It's, it's <laughs> a lot of practice and it is some sometimes just like getting really good at zipping. Yeah. Zipping, zipping your lips. But that is not a huge burden to focus on listening more. 